Oh, beware, my Lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Says Iago to Othello in one of Shakespeare's great tragedies, Othello. Well, Iago's statement is even more tragic in that uh, it was Iago's jealousy for Othello that ended up in Othello's downfall and his own. You know, some argue that Iago is Shakespeare's uh, most sinister villains. And they argue that he's so sinister because he's so sane. <laughs> he's just a normal kind of guy and has great intellect. But what makes him so sinister is that feelings of ingratitude lead him to do very, very cruel things. Well, Shakespeare might have been thinking of Saul when he was creating his character of Iago. He might have been reading scripture in 1 Samuel and seeing, ah, this is my character for the story of Othello. But like Othello, we will see we have a character today in David that is the victim of Saul's envy and Saul's jealousy. So it starts off innocently, but it grows to a green-eyed monster that consumes him. That is what happens to Saul, and that is what we will see today. But I want us to be encouraged or just be looking at this passage and not remove ourselves from it. Thinking, oh, I'm far away from Iago. I'm far away from Saul. In fact, we might use similar tactics as these individuals of how we overcome hurt and disappointment in our lives. And one way we do that is we feed on envy and we feed on jealousy. And my argument to you today is this. If this appetite of envy and jealousy is not filled with something greater, it will consume us. If this appetite for envy and for jealousy is not filled with something greater, it will consume us. Well, let's look at the scripture together, shall we? We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 16. Please pay attention as we read God's word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David in his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. 
And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this word would, again, uh, make us see things in our own lives. Uh, Maybe some hard things to see. And uh, that we would not be embarrassed, uh, that we would not flee, that we would instead run towards you as we read a story like this, and it might expose things in us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Jealousy, right? The desire for what someone else has. Scripture has different words for it, and so does history. In Scripture, in the Ten Commandments, we get the word to covet, to desire someone else's stuff, their wife, their oxen, whatever it might be, the last of the Ten Commandments. In church history, we see the seven deadly sins, and one of them is envy. And uh, church historians through the years identify envy as a little bit different like the other, um, different than the other seven deadly sins. It's not a sin of the flesh, one that's out in the open, one that can fulfill us when we get it, like gluttony, for example. But envy is hidden. It's unique in that, that its participants never really enjoy, and they rarely confess it. I mean, the uniqueness of envy is, again, that the participants never really enjoy envy like they would gluttony or other kind of sins. But instead, they sit in it. And they rarely confess it. No, the thing I, the reason I think people don't confess envy and jealousy is because it's hard to identify. It's hard to identify because um, when we are angry at someone or or, uh, jealous of someone or envy of someone, we just pick out things about them. Oh, they have this, or they have that, or they act this way, or they act that way. And it's hard to actually put a name to what really is going on inside of us. That we're just envious and, and jealous of them. In fact, if we say that we're envious of them, it's very defeating the very thing that we want, is that they would not be ascribed good things. <laughs> And if we say, uh, oh yeah, I have a bad feeling towards them, then they've won. And we don't want that. Thomas Aquinas did a good job. He said, 
Envy is a sorrow at another's good. Envy is sorrow at another's good. And we find joy at them being brought low. And sorrow when they succeed. The very opposite of what scripture says we should do. Well, there's labels, right? I can label it covetousness, envy, jealousy, all those things. Uh, but the truth is, if we read the scripture passage, are those, any of those words used? No, none of them are. I'm thankful for Roxanne coming to me before the service. I'd read the passage and said, it seems like you're going to be talking about jealousy today. Yes, Roxanne, you are right. I am. She was able to discern from the text that that is what this passage is about. And that's why I love scripture, is that we get different elements of scripture from the law to poetry to different elements, but we get narrative too. And in a narrative, we see people playing out in life sin and playing out these kind of struggles. And that's what we see today in 1 Samuel. So if you're just joining us, what is going on is that we have seen some major characters from Samuel to Saul and now to David rising up. And David um, is this character that just um, was anointed by Samuel as the next king. And he went out with power and defeated the mighty Goliath. And Saul and the people have seen this happen. And now we're going to see from, I think it's a real break in this book, from here until the end of 1 Samuel. How do people react to David? What is their reaction to this new anointed king? And we're going to see glimpses of it again today. And we're going to see it play out even to its further extent as we go through the book. But today we'll see Saul. How does he react to David? Well, Saul reacts in envy. And in Saul's reaction, we see what envy is and what envy does. And then we see how Jonathan reacts to David. And there we see the cure to envy. So in Saul, we see what envy is and what it does. And in Jonathan's reaction to David, we see the cure to envy. Let's see what envy is, shall we? Saul, uh, after David has accomplished his great victory over Goliath, he says, does not let him return to his father's house. Saul attached himself to David. And we saw this is what Saul does uh, when he sees people that are victorious and strong or mighty. He takes these strong men and he brings them into his court. And Samuel warned, he said, this is not good, okay, <laughs> when this happens with kings. Kings, what they do is they take your sons, they take your daughters for themselves. And this is what Saul is doing. And automatically, Saul puts David the head of the men of war. And with that, David wins many battles. The question does still remain, does Saul do this for his own glory or for Israel's glory? Does he just bring David close? So it's great. This is good for Israel. This is good for the Lord. Or does he bring David close because it is good for him? <laughs> just a quick application to this. 
when we mentor people, maybe in our works or uh, wherever it might be in jobs, what do we do when the person starts to become better at our job than we are? (laughs) I think one identifier to see if your heart is in the right place is that if someone becomes better or you see that they're better at something than you are, that you allow them to circumvent or come above you rather than competing with them. Because for the glory of the job, for the glory of the church, for whatever it might be. And to check our hearts, one way to see that is what we do when people might be better at our jobs, especially those that are younger than us or have been in it less. Would we abjugate our thrones and let them take the reins? And we see where Saul's true heart is, don't we? Because the women come out, right? Everyone loves to have women cheer for them, right? And here Saul is waiting for the cheering. And they say, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, if you know Hebrew poetry, as many commentators say, this really isn't an insult against Saul. It's not a comparison of one versus the other. The way that the poetry is set out is just saying that David and Saul have killed thousands and ten thousands. And in fact, putting Saul as the first name actually puts him in authority. But you see that Saul is paranoid. He blows it out of proportion. He takes this as a personal insult. And I find it interesting that he takes this as a personal insult, and we'll see this throughout all of 1 Samuel, there is nowhere in 1 Samuel that the people say, make David king. Let's get rid of Saul, make David king. That doesn't happen. Even as Saul goes down this pit, the people never say David should be king. But Saul is inventing these things in his mind. And he is paranoid and he is worried. And even if, maybe commentators are wrong, or maybe I am interpreting this wrong myself, even if this is an insult against Saul, Saul should rejoice. David has mighty in battle. That is wonderful. That is good for Israel. But we see that envy displays what is truly in Saul's heart. And it displays his idols. From the very beginning, Saul enjoyed the praise of people. And he loved that people loved him. And now he sees that someone else is getting the praise of others. And he does not like it. No, this can't be. How can this young man get the praise of people? And you see in his envy, it identifies what truly is in his heart and what he truly desires. You know, the first sign of envy is comparison. I'm glad that comparison only comes one time a year, right? With Christmas cards, right? It's only one time a year. You know, it's December time. The Christmas cards come in and people put the best picture they can find of their family on there. And then they have their Christmas notes. Some, some of them do. All the highlights. Oh, Jimmy has made the varsity team, you know. Sally's now in college and she's going to some Ivy League school and you're like, oh, great. 
But the joy of modern society is that comparisons don't just come once a year now, do they? They come 24-7 in something we call Facebook, right? Now we have it all the time. That we can see pictures of people throughout the world and the nation, our friends, all the time. It's there. And then we can say things like this. Oh, isn't that great? They went on a vacation. Oh, they got a house. Oh, he, he's in a relationship. Oh, she looks good. Right now, let me just re-say it and just put emphasis other places, right? I'm sure you say it like that, right, when you see those pictures. Not, they went on vacation. They got a house. He's in a relationship. She looks good. You laugh. But what do you say in your heart? Verse 10 is very troubling for many. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand. Many people have a problem with the idea of God giving a harmful spirit to someone. Um, I think there's a wrong interpretation here that this is like maybe the opposite of the Holy Spirit that God gives evil spirits um, to people. No, I don't think that's how the Hebrew is interpreting it here. In fact, that harmful spirit is meaning a state of misery, a position that brings forth disaster. That is what Saul has. He is in a state of misery. He's in a position of disaster. But still, it says it comes from God. Well, I think the worst thing that God can do to us is he can let us stay in those positions of misery. He can let us be in that place. Romans 1 talks about that, that he lets people go. I've said this before. And when God lets people go, we see to the extent of where they do go. They are cast off at sea. And when they go off at sea, it's crazy where they end up going. And that is what happens here to Saul. He is now unchecked. He doesn't have God's common grace. And what will fill that vacuum? The vacuum that is there in him. Well, what will fill the vacuum is misery and jealousy. And the ball of envy keeps rolling. And it picks up momentum. It moves from comparison to step two, desire. I want what they have. I am not content with what I have. And then the ball keeps on rolling from comparison to desire to resentment. And resentment says they don't deserve, but I do. Dorothy Sayer says it best, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? Is envy. And at the end, envy says this, why should others enjoy what I may not? And that is what happens to Saul. 
Why should David get the glory? Why should he receive these things? Why should he be put in this place? And if he gets it, he should not. He should not have it. And because he should not have it, he should die. So what will I do? I'll put him into battle with less men. And I'll just send him out and maybe he'll die in battle. And then maybe I'll just throw the spear and pin him against the wall. And you see, which is so ironic here, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. If anyone should be fearful in this passage, should it not be David, who just had two spears thrown at him, that goes out to battle day in and day out with less and less men? But you see what envy does. It consumes Saul. And it brings him to the place of destruction. Proverbs has it right, does it not? Envy is rottenness to the bones. Envy is rottenness to the bones. How do you respond to the advancement of others? And to their good? How how do you respond to the advancement of others? Let me take it maybe one step further. How do you respond to the advancement of your peers? Os Guinness says it so well. We are always most vulnerable to envying those closest to our own gifts and callings. (laughs) Musicians generally envy musicians, not politicians. Politicians, other politicians. Sports people, other sports people. Professors, other professors. Ministers, other ministers. See, those with whom we share the most is who we envy the most. And isn't that sad? Because those who we share the most from are those we stand to learn the most from, right? And to benefit from the most from. To be friends with. To live life with. To experience life with. But envy gets in the way. I got to go to St. Paul this week and visit my best friend, the best man in my wedding, Clint Olson. And uh, Clint and I have been friends since birth. Um, His mom and my mom became friends when they were pregnant with us. And they were due the same day. And so around this time, which is my birthday last week, that we kind of get together and celebrate those things together. And we grew up being friends, playing the same sports, going to the same church activities, doing the same things. I mean, that's just what we did. But then sophomore year came, sophomore year of high school, and Clint made the varsity team in volleyball, and I didn't. And it was hard. It hurt. I tell you, you know what envy did? I mean, I didn't label it envy, but you know what it was doing in me? One thing it did is it stole my joy. The sport I loved, I love volleyball. 
but now I didn't enjoy it at all. It took my gratitude. Nothing else mattered anymore. All it did was I didn't make the varsity team, and he did. And I didn't concentrate on all the other joys that were coming with high school, and you know I was also the captain of my JV team. I didn't have any gratitude towards that. The only thing I concentrated on was that thing. So it stole my joy. It stole my gratitude. And it stole the love for my friend. You know, we would travel on the road together, the JV and the varsity team and these different cities throughout Wisconsin. And of course, the JV team would have to watch the varsity team. Oh, how I wanted him to fail. Oh, how I watched him play and say, I hope he messes up. It stole the love for my friend. But you know what it was doing the deepest inside of me, which I didn't have words for? It was telling me that God was not good. He doesn't want what's best for me, God. He loves other people more than he loves me. He doesn't want my good. Look what he does. He puts that person in that place and me here. Christina Fox says it so well. Our discontentment, jealousy, and bitterness points a finger at God and tells him that he has gotten the story of our life wrong. And we can write it better. Oh, Dan, it's not that bad. Come on, I can still love God and honor God and still have my little jealousies and envy towards friends. Now, I can compartmentalize that. It's fine. I can come to church and worship him. I can know Hebrew scripture and I can study Greek words. You know, I can memorize scripture backwards and forwards. I'm good. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You want meat, but you can't even drink milk. Do you know why? Because I see what's inside of your hearts. Your jealousness and your quarrelsome against each other. How do you even know the gospel and the good news of Christ if that is how you act towards others? You don't deserve meat. You need still the milk of the gospel. And I think that's what many of us need ourselves. Oh, I'm up to graduate level um, studies with God. I am really good in my Christianity. But while you still struggle with envy and with jealousy, it shows that you have little understanding of who God really is and what he has done. See, when we look down on another brother or sister, that is just... So contrary. It just makes no sense. See, they are joint members of the body. See, their gifts are gifts to us. We are united together in Christ as the head. And their gifts edify all of us. How would we not glory in what God has given them? We should long for them to flourish. We should long for the good to happen to them. Please hear me. 
We miss out on friendships because of our envy. We see someone's pregnant and we're not. And we, every time we see them, we are envious and jealous. And we don't even want to be around them. We see someone that's married and we're not. And we go, how is that fair? We see people in our same stage of life with kids. And we see, oh, their kids are behaved, but look at my kids. We see people with their careers that are further ahead or their houses are nicer. And it doesn't end. We're in retirement. And we see someone is enjoying retirement better than we ever will. We miss out on friendships because of our envy and our jealousy. Come on. Come on, look at Saul. He was bound to lose the whole kingdom to this young punk. I mean, he had to give it all up. It makes sense that he's envious. Wouldn't you do the same thing? Wouldn't you do the same thing? This is why this passage is so rich. You know, there is one person in this passage that's bound to lose more than Saul. Right? Who's bound to lose more than Saul in this passage? Jonathan. I mean, Jonathan is the heir to the throne. In fact, he's a better king than Saul was. He actually went into battle. People probably liked him more. But by David rising to power and being anointed as king, Jonathan wouldn't even get his chance to be king. And we see through Jonathan's reaction to David, the cure to envy. I'm so displeased I actually have to mention this, but it has to be mentioned nowadays in our culture. That is this some homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan? I just want to say the accusation of that reveals more about our culture than it does about the relationship here. Okay. Listen, if we want to talk about sexual ethics and homosexuality, that's fine. We can talk about that, but you don't get it here, okay? And if you want to talk about that subject matter, we can talk about it. But that is, that is so far from what's happening here, okay? It's just sad that we can't see friendships in that way nowadays between men. But the symbolism that's happening here is one, is the knitting together actually happens earlier in scripture too. It's the idea of uh, people being um, coming together in brotherhood. And that's what David and Saul is happening when David is brought in as a member of the household. And then later as we see Mary's um, Michael and becomes a son-in-law. I mean, this is a knitting together of brothers. And also we see the love that Jonathan has towards David. The love here that's mentioned is also the love that we see from all people towards David throughout this passage. But I think what is more shocking than anything is what Jonathan gives up. He gives his robe, which is his symbol of, you know, royalty. He takes that off and gives that to David. And then he gives his sword. I, I, I just, 
You just have to picture the vulnerability there. Jonathan is giving his sword to David. And he's saying, here I am, vulnerable. You have the sword. You have control over me. You are the one above me. You are the one that I will follow. You are the one that I trust that I will give you a sword and I will have nothing. See, Jonathan is abdicating the throne. He's giving it to David. And by doing that, he is attaching himself to David. He's saying he is the rightful king. He is the one that deserves this place. I will benefit by him being king. I will be able to receive glory and honor if I give it to David. See, the cure to envy is giving up what you think you deserve to the Lord. God, here's my sword. I will be vulnerable before you. I will lay down my battles with others. I will lay down what I fight for and I wield to get what I want. I give it to you because I know you have what is best. The cure is letting him have the crown. Letting him have the sword. Trusting that he has what is best. And then the steps will fall in place. So step one to getting rid of envy. You guys like application? Here we go. Okay, here's their steps. You want four steps to a better life? Here it is. Four steps to getting rid of envy, okay? So step one, confessing. Confessing to God. God, I am jealous. I don't know what you are doing in that person's life, I don't know why you're letting that person have those things, but all I know is this. I'm envious, and it's destroying my joy, my gratitude, and my love. I don't know why you're doing the things you're doing, but I know my feelings right now are wrong, and I confess to you. In my sophomore year, in my English paper, I wrote the paper that I said, I am jealous of my friend Clint. In a public school, you get interesting reactions from English teachers when you write things like that. But it made for a great conversation. After confessing to, step two is rejoicing in their success and in their gifts. That now I could step back and I could say, God, thank you for the intellect you gave my best friend, Clint. Thank you for the athletic prowess that you gave him. You have gifted him in mighty, mighty ways. And I rejoice that you are able to do that for him. Rejoicing in their success and their gifts. Step three, being edified by their gifts. You know, Clint led our team to a state championship. And I was on that team my junior year. Clint went to Pepperdine and played starting for the national championship team at Pepperdine University. And I got to go 
and be on ESPN and watch him win a national championship. And then I got to rejoice in him taking his gifts with athletes in action and traveling throughout the world playing volleyball and telling people about Christ. And Clint's intellect, he was able to become a doctor. And I got to be edified by that, by him coming to my house and diagnosing my girls when they had problems and giving us writing um, prescriptions, you know, so I didn't have to go to the doctor, you know. He saved us money, you know. But the church was also edified that in his residency, he traveled throughout the world doing medical missions in very, very poor places, giving his care to others. Step one, confessing. Step two, rejoicing in their success. Step three, being edified by their gifts. And step four, growing in mutual love. See, there were things that David and Jonathan didn't even see that were going to happen. And because Jonathan was able to do that early on, some great things happened in both of their lives. And for the kingdom of Israel... And their love for each other helped each other and also the kingdom. And also the things that we don't see is that there might be times that that other person might be envying us and struggling with that too. Something we don't even see. And the roles might reverse. Hold it together, here we go. When Clint visits my family, not married, and sees my four girls and my wonderful wife, and he is there with my family, I know what's in his heart. It is so hard. It is so hard for him. And we can talk about it together. We can grieve together. And I can... Hold him up in unconditional love and say that God loves you, brother. He loves you and cares for you and what he has given you. I've gone through the same struggle with you. And we can hold each other in unconditional love. Come on. Can I trust such a God? It's not fair, Lord. It's not fair what you give others and don't give me. I want these things and you give it to them? How can I trust a God like that? How can I be for a God like that? You see, Jesus is the greater Jonathan. Jesus gave trusted in the Father, and he gave up his throne, and he gave him the sword. You know what Christ could have said on this earth? God, these people don't deserve this. They don't deserve any of this. If anyone deserves life, if anyone deserves the kingdom, if anyone deserves reigning over all of them, I do. But what do they give me? They kill me. They give me a crown of thorns. Jonathan Edwards says it so well in his sermon on envy. 
See, God loves seeing us get what we don't deserve. God loves seeing us get what we don't deserve. The one that deserves to be envious. The one that deserves true justice. The one that deserves all of these things. He gave them up for us. How can we not then do the same? Isn't that a God that is worthy to be trusted? The greater Jonathan. The true king that gave up his throne. That abjugated it to us who did not deserve. Not because he had to, but because he loved us. Envy will consume us. It will eat at us. It will destroy us. Maybe not in this life, but in judgment it will. Here is something we can consume that will cure that. That is what we do. We come forward and say, I need that in me. To get rid of that. I need Christ inside of me. I need him to rule me. I need him to take the sword. I need him to take the crown. I need him to be able to cure my envy and jealousy. So when you come forward, this don't take this lightly. When you come forward, you are saying, I bow to him.